What is social leadership and how does it sit alongside formal leadership? Try, learn, try. A willingness to question and the permission to challenge and be challenged is key. One of the statements I'd still stand by is that curiosity is a defining feature of a, a socially dynamic organisation. Hi, my name's Julian Stodd. Welcome to the podcast. In this series of podcasts, I'm taking articles from the blog and I'm providing some additional context around them as well as sharing how my thinking has changed. And that for me is one of the important parts of writing the blog is that you can share thoughts which are not yet fully evolved and be unafraid as some of that work just disappears and other evolves into something a little stronger. And this piece, which I want to share today, is about a state of radical complexity. So it was some thinking about organisations and the complex world they inhabit and how they themselves can become unknowably complex. It was really, it represented uh, the point where I started using this language to describe the social structure of the organisation. Now, I should say that this piece um, is early stage working out loud. So uh, I'll try to provide that context as we go through it, but I shall hope that in and of itself, it's not too complex. So let's give it a go. When the banks collapsed in the last financial crisis, there was a phrase banded about that some were too big to fail. And this week, I've been pondering something of the opposite. Are some organisations too big to succeed? I'm not thinking specifically of their headcount, their geographical spread, or the physical weight of their buildings, but rather more the radical complexity of their networks, the unknowable nature of their knowledge, and the sheer inertia of their formal hierarchies. Possibly good organisations, probably doing good work, but ultimately doomed to fail through their inability to understand their true dynamics. Now, when I wrote those words in July of 2017, I was very much immersed in thinking about change. And indeed, I'd just written the introduction uh, to the Change Handbook. And in that book, I'd use the language about oil tankers because organisations often say, you know, change is really hard. It's like turning the wheel on the oil tanker. You turn it and you have to wait 30 minutes for the thing to change direction because it has so much mass and momentum. And it's always really frustrated me because it gives the sense that the mass and momentum and the inertia is natural. But of course, it's not. It's something that we build ourselves and we can easily undo it. You know, it's perfectly possible for organisations to change fast if they have engineered in that ability to do so. So it got me thinking about, well, where is the inertia? You know, where does inertia actually sit? And of course, it very often sits not just in formal processes, but also in mindsets as well. The the little empires that we inhabit, good people doing good jobs, are often the things that hold us back. So that really would set the the context. Good organisations doing good work, but doomed to fail, you know, through their inability to understand complexity. The work around the landscape of trust has helped me to understand the granular nature of social systems the networks of trust, pride and respect that are held outside the formal structure, but fully at the heart of the functioning social systems that we inhabit. Global organisations are made up of many of these granular structures, defined not by functional structure, not by formal team layouts and organisational charts, but rather by bonds of strong social ties and connections. 
These are high-functioning social units that may, coincidentally, overlay formal units of organisation. But the capability is held within the social structure, or at least largely so. And this piece I wrote, it was very much one of the early insights from the landscape of trust work that communities may map onto formal structures quite clearly, but tribal structures, the things that people really belong to at a deep social level, don't. So one organisational team may consist of one tribe, but most likely it consists, it draws upon different people uh, that come from different tribes. And I use a very specific language around tribes, that they are a trust-bonded structure. So we can imagine that an organisation is full of these tiny, granular trust-bonded units, but the organisation as a whole doesn't necessarily hold the whole of that trust. The formal organisation may own the tooling, the technology, the physical space and the engineered product, but the social system owns the trust, the innovative thought, the creativity and the momentum. I guess that there are two states, one of complexity and one of radical complexity, perhaps a tipping point between that which is simply complicated and that which is unknowably intertwined. Now, of course, I'm probably cheating here, you know, trying to introduce a taxonomy of complexity. And I know that different theorists will have different views on this. And I know that because I've, I've, I've had to talk it over with some of them and, you know, found that our views vary quite differently. But as with much of my work, I guess, this is an abstraction. It's a convenient truth um, that we shouldn't dig too deeply around. But it's worth considering whatever language you choose to use, that some things which we think of as complex are kind of knowably complex. If we actually put the time, energy and effort in, we probably could map it and understand it. So, for example, if I wanted to understand how my car engine works, to me it's horribly complicated, but given enough time and research and understanding, it's probably knowably complicated. Certainly, Steve, the guy that uh, gets it through its annual service, knows how it works. But other things are you know, to all intents and purposes, unknowably complex. And I'd argue that organisations fall into that category. You could go into ever more granular detail to build a computer simulation of it, but you wouldn't necessarily know the thing itself. Even within known systems, people delude themselves as to the mechanisms by which they're effective. We believe that we know more people than we do. We believe that we're better connected than we really are. And we hear confirmatory signals that we prioritise over weak voices of dissent from within these sub-optimised structures. There's great interest at the moment in fake news, but that's barely to scratch the surface. Confirmation bias allows us to delude ourselves that we are more wise than it's wise to believe, and probably lies behind much consensus decision-making in large organisations. And that's kind of really important and again, it's building out something I was following in that analogy about the oil tankers. The constraint we feel, the delusion we feel, isn't specifically something imposed onto us by other evil people. It's very often something that we convince ourselves into. Consumer psychology teaches us some of this. We tend to intuit a response or a course of action, then socialise it and gather support. 
our selective attention and confirmation bias tends to direct us to reinforce this initial view as we rationalise our action before the event and even post hoc rationalise it to align with emergent observation. Or, you know, a tidier way of saying that would be to say that our brains like things to be tidy. So we go to quite enormous lengths to deceive ourselves that they are tidy. And, And indeed that need for tidiness, for complete understanding, may cause us to cut our own corners rather than have things imposed on us. Essentially, we tend to believe in what we do and continue to believe it whilst failing to recognise that our belief is a matter of blind faith, not logical deduction. Organisations are remarkably emotional entities. Of course, these features tend to work quite well. We muddle along, making some good decisions and a few bad ones. We make general progress, which, although perhaps not optimised, can still cope with the odd bump in the road. But at what scale? Technology has allowed for the radical scaling of organisational effectiveness. No longer limited to branch networks and postal-based admin systems, we can achieve effect at a scale and size never before contemplated. But it's not limitless scale. There are limits to the connections that we can hold, the knowledge that we can glean, the ability of even the smartest individual to comprehend every aspect of a system. In the age of domains, we professionalised. We solidified the pyramids of power and formalised the manifestations of the organisation. We built the standardised organisational design and management principles based upon visibility, clarity and solidity. These domains had the benefit of being clear and visible. They were scalable, at least in terms of physical organisation. If what you wanted was to know where all the nuts and bolts were, then this structure worked quite well. Formal hierarchies and domain-based knowledge allow us to quantify and understand organisations within that one dimension. Now that language, the age of domains, it was the first time I used that text and in the illustration that goes with it I I showed another one of these sort of convenient fictions which shows the age of subservience into the age of domains and then the age of engagements. And of course that's it's sort of true but it's also a convenient fiction. Uh, but it's to represent that in the old world we probably got a job and were subservient within an organisation. We built out the domain-based structures which dominate our educational and professional development. But of course now we live in an age of engagement. The social age, if nothing else, is an age of engagement. But in the age of engagement, the social age, much of the value of the organisation has migrated into the social structure. Sense-making networks, social filtering, social moderation, social capital and reputation-based authority, agility, cognitive surplus, crowdsourcing and hacking, social movements and so on and so forth. The capability, our ability to innovate, to scale, the change, all this is intimately tied up in the social system. And, you know, I still stand by that now, that, that, that much of the good stuff of the organisation takes place essentially within the social system. We need a formal system because it does some things incredibly well. But the formal system alone can't give us the innovation and ability to change that we seek. Don't get me wrong, the formal system still exists and it's still vital. Under a model of dynamic tension, we recognise both. The formal system holds all the visible assets, the hierarchy and the control, and the social system holds the trust, the pride and the momentum. We cannot afford for one to collapse the other. 
If the formal system triumphs, it looks safe but lacks agility. And if the social system triumphs, we have a lot of fun, but we struggle to achieve effect at scale. Organisations are excellent at scale. Social systems are excellent at connection and sense-making, and we need both. But we need to understand that they scale differently. The mechanisms of scale in formal organisations is to build wider spans of control, more functional units, more systems, more infrastructure, more oversight, more rules, more contracts, more visible structure. The mechanism of scale in social systems is different. More tribes, more rituals, customs, perhaps more belief, greater networked power, broader reputation, perhaps greater unrest, possibly fragmented coherence speciation, specialism. I'm not altogether sure. The clearest examples we have are nations, broadly connected national entities that often present greater divergence than conformity and often struggle to overcome political entropy. Possibly politics is the answer. As we scale, we become more political and politics, a convenient term for structural differences in opinion, becomes a gradually more potent force. So in in that piece, I'm really considering that, that as the organisation scales, perhaps it does become predominantly a political and indeed geopolitical entity. So perhaps it's wrong to think of organisations in terms of formal codified power. We should think about them more in geopolitical uh, geopolitical terms, thinking about factions and schisms and dynasties. Indeed, more recently, I've started using the word dynasties a lot more to, to represent the kind of power we often see. In physical systems, friction builds up as you speed up leading to the re-entry systems of rockets glowing red-hot as they streak through the atmosphere. The same appears to be true in social systems, or at least in some social systems. There are exceptions. Social movements which tend to be one-dimensional can gain consensus more easily. We can all get behind an opposition message of we wish that this thing was better, even if we cannot gain consensus on what the better thing should be. In political systems, this is the difference between opposition voices and those that sit in power. It's easier in some ways to hold opposition because you can build networks of broad consensus against the ruling elite. These political forces may form the friction of radical complexity. Now that work um, has been quite important for me in understanding that very often communities exist predominantly as entities of opposition that we shouldn't have the notion that to drive change, we need to build consensus. Sometimes we just need to create space for opposition and an ability to hear the voices that we uncover. In political systems, this is the difference between opposition voices and those that sit in power. It's easier in some ways to hold opposition because you can build a network of broad consensus against the ruling elite. So, again, we don't have to have the answers. Sometimes it's enough to say we do not like things um, as they are at the moment. As the formal system scales, it does not particularly build radical complexity. It's complex, but a type of complexity that can be managed through technology. The emergence of geographical information systems allowed for better estate management and new stock picking and inventory control technologies, the mechanisms of fleet management, These allow us to know what is where and who can do what, at least within the formal system. 
The social system as it scales builds political potential, friction within the system. Just look at organised religion, another analogy for social systems at scale. They build, schism and fracture, sometimes failing. You don't find many Mithraists around these days. You know, religious systems have always changed and evolved. Not all systems are infinitely scalable, although the absolute limits of scale can be hard to measure, and indeed the radically interconnected nature of the system may make measurement effectively impossible. Physical properties we can measure. There's a limit to how high you can build a brick wall before the weight of bricks on top crushes the weight of bricks at the bottom. It's high, but not infinitely high. Similarly, to get a rocket into orbit, you need to overcome inertia and gravity. So you need a big rocket, but big rockets weigh a lot. So you need a bigger rocket to lift the weight of the rocket. That's why on the Apollo missions, the initial Saturn V rocket stack weighed thousands of tonnes, whilst the landing capsule that returned to Earth weighed just hundreds of kilos. The massive complexity was required to achieve a seemingly small return. And as the system gets bigger, it requires relatively more complexity for respectively smaller returns. And that's kind of an important way of looking at things. We sometimes think that as organisations get bigger, they achieve economies of scale. And they probably do within certain narrowly defined parameters. But the cost of that is probably this radical complexity, unknowable complexity. I'm working with one global organisation at the moment that's highly successful, but you couldn't claim to fully understand the, the location of its own success. They know that overall they are successful, but they're terrified of changing anything in case they accidentally break it. Indeed, to stick with a space analogy, we see the new Victorian disruptors achieving spaceflight for a small fraction of the cost of NASA because they lack the established cost, complexity, oversight and organisations of the large, larger entity. This is a feature of large organisations. The constraint that they face is often not imposed upon them by competitors or native market forces. It is instead grown from within. They engineer their own constraint. As organisations grow, they build both their formal structure and the political potential for stagnation. They become complex and then radically complex. We're not at the end game in many cases. Some techno-evangelists pin their hope on machine learning systems and artificial intelligence, harbouring a belief that these things will be able to measure and understand this new complexity. And to some extent, they will. Machine learning algorithms will be able to map interaction and even knowledge flow within social networks. They'll be able to map one dimension of connectivity and community. They'll provide visibility of that which is currently hidden within the system, but only one layer. The final feature of radical complexity concerns the layers. Whilst there is only one formal system, the social system itself is multi-layered and complex in its own right. To put it another way, there is only one organisational chart, but there are many, many overlapping, contextual, conflicting and contrasted social networks. Some are semi-formal and visible, whilst many are private, unknown, internally complex and invisible we run a risk of having almost enough knowledge to be truly ignorant. Sure, formal technologies will permeate these networks, but one lesson we should have taken from the age of domains with the emergence of measurement as a mechanism of control was that we can only measure what we understand. We can measure our formal systems, but we may not even know that the other communities and spaces exist. 
Now, that was something that came out clearly in our own research on communities. For example, communities in the NHS. When I interviewed over 500 NHS professionals in the UK on where their most effective communities are and which technologies they use to collaborate, they identified 17 different technologies, 16 of which they're explicitly forbidden from using to collaborate. They collaborate outside the system. Not because they're bad people doing bad things, because they're good people trying to be effective around the edges of the system. We can delude ourselves with ease that we have full understanding, but true understanding may forever, at least in functional terms, be beyond us. Short of modelling the whole of society, we'll lack broad understanding of the multi-layered social system. And even if we had enough hubris to try, The system is multi-layered and contextual, so it flows around and under our feet. Is there a tipping point? Are some organisations too large to simply be complex, but instead tip into radical complexity? I'd suggest almost certainly that this is the case. They have, after all, often grown by the mechanism of acquisition and merger, another name for colonisation and conquest. And nation-states are certainly, demonstrably, unsettled, impermanent and radically complex, deeply political and subject to entrenched political dissent. A key feature of organisational complexity is the nature of organisations themselves. Their mechanisms for accreting system, process and control, with barely any capability for disengineering it once it's served its purpose. I can think of no formal organisational system that's characterised by becoming simpler as it scales. Perversely, though, some social systems do become simpler with scale. They find a clarity, and one that's occasionally demonstrated to amplify fast. Arguably, a notion like the Arab Spring was such a scaling social effect. Formal systems focus on control and dampen out simplicity, while social systems are inherently complex but carry within them some potential for sense-making and simplicity, which is strangely perverse, but speaks of the forces of amplification, magnetism and sheer unpredictability of social systems, as well as the aforementioned forces of confirmation bias and socially moderated decision-making. So what can be done about that? Well, it's a complex question in itself. The best bet that I have is that of a socially dynamic organisation. For me, the answer lies in reconciling the two parallel pillars of the organisation, achieving that dynamic tension between formal and social systems. But can that be done at infinite scale? Possibly, but only if we develop a new capability of unwinding complexity within the formal structure. If we're to remove hardwired formal complexity then we may conceivably build social connectivity and dynamic ability within the new connected system. So in my own work, that's really the idea. If we want an organisation that's fit for the future, we'll have to build a new type of organisation. I guess in that sense, you could say that my own work comes down to principles of organisational design, which are built in both these parallel dimensions. The formal system with its knowable complexity, and the social system with its radical complexity, but with an engaged and interconnected community that will help us make sense of it. And this is how I concluded. Are some organisations too big to fail? The evidence would be against that. But are some organisations too big to succeed? In their current form, be they government systems, global banks or pharmaceutical companies, 
Emergent tech empires or military structures? Quite possibly yes. Or at least yes, unless we're willing to consider radical new models of organisational design and redistributed models of power and control. So that was my uh, complex tour through complexity, but it's a, it's a notion which still uh, permeates through my work in that notion of a socially dynamic organisation. And I'd encourage us to, to think of it like this. It's easy to see the complexity in the organisation around us. It's easy to feel the constraint. But a useful view is to understand how much of it we can deconstruct. You know, how much of the constraint is just held within systems that we can take apart and how much is truly unknowably complex. Thanks for listening. <laughs>